Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. My guest this week is a little bit of a departure for the show, and he is a poet and novelist and memoirist Paul Pines. I had a chance to see Paul read from his new book, Last Call at the Tin Palace, uh, recently in Albany, New York, and afterwards sat down with Paul to talk to him about the Tin Palace, which was a jazz club in uh, New York that Paul started and ran... Um, for quite a long time, sold it, and someone else ran it for a while, but it was uh, a real incubator for a lot of great talent in New York, uh, particularly in the 1970s. Paul was kind enough to sit down and talk about the club and uh, read some of his work, and so with no further ado, we take you to the Social Justice Center on Central Avenue in Albany, New York, for my conversation with Paul Pines. My guest is the poet jazz impresario Paul Pines. Uh, he has uh, written both novels and uh, books of poetry, uh, the most recent of which is Last Call at the Tin Palace. And the Tin Palace is the name of the, the seminal 70s jazz club uh, that Paul uh, opened in New York. And it is my pleasure to have you here. Thanks nice so to be here with you, Jason. Uh, we just finished, uh, we're at the Social Justice Center in Albany, just uh, finished watching Paul as a, as a featured reader at the Third Thursday. Um, for for folks who don't know and who aren't familiar particularly with this kind of, uh, where this was and what the New York scene was like in the 70s in the area you opened this club, will you talk about where the Tin Palace was and, and well, uh, what it was? The, the, the lower, whole Lower East Side scene um, was uh, in the 70s, in the late 60s and early 70s, was really an incubator for enormous talents in all the arts. Um, painting, writing, and certainly jazz. And uh, uh, Slug Saloon, which was um, uh, a seminal saloon on uh, 3rd Street and Avenue C. It's where Pharaoh Sanders uh, played, and uh, it, it was it was a place that I kind of cut my teeth on as a kid living there. I made my living writing and tending bars, and I was managing a bar and tending a bar on the corner of Fourth um, Street and uh, uh, Bowery. When uh, it was called Phoebe's, it was an off-off Broadway bar. Uh, theater also was, was was very richly developing in that area. When someone came to me and said, uh, there's a burnt-out bar on the corner of 2nd Street and Bowery. Um, I don't know how to run a bar, but I can get a lease on it. Will you do it? Will you become a partner in it? And that, to make a long story short, was the way um, the Tin Palace uh, came into being. And we rebuilt the bar, and uh, I made it clear that I, if I was going to do this, I was going to be the active partner. I had a vision. And they said, fine. And uh, we opened the bar, and in the spirit of synchronicity, you know, with the way the cosmos sometimes call you, uh, before we had any music in the bar, we had a payphone, public payphone installed. Uh, and the first call I got on that payphone, somebody said, who's playing tonight? And I said, nobody's playing tonight. And they said, well, isn't this Slug Saloon? And I said, no, this isn't Slug Saloon. This is the Tin Palace. And by the time I hung up, I realized that in the circuitry 
of New York City, we had somehow, oddly enough, been given the payphone of Slug Saloon, which had closed shortly after the shooting of Lee Morgan. And um, it was like a call to arms for me, uh, at which point I started to book music. But the it was also a wake-up call. I said to myself, I will not have what happened at Slugs happened in my saloon. So we made very hard, fast rules about uh, dope and uh, what could go on in there and what couldn't go on in there. And uh, we then proceeded for the next decade to draw from talent that was just coming up. Um, the loft jazz scene was very much alive two blocks away, Sam Rivers, Jolie Wilson, Monty Waters, their lofts, later Rashid Ali. But <clears throat> we drew from the avant-garde movement, which was just coming of age, which included uh, um, Henry Threadgill, Fred Hopkins, David Murray, the World Saxophone Quartet got its uh, start there, Oliver Lake. We just happened to be on that corner at the right place at the right time. And it was an incredible journey. Well, there's there's so much to react to there. But uh, um, one thing I, I wanted to touch on was the issue of class. And for people whose only experience of going to New York and seeing jazz <laughs> is in the 90s or 2000s, mm. um, where you know it's $95 plus a $35 drink minimum, plus you have to order dinner, your, uh, at least from my understanding, the Tin Palace was before I was old enough to be watching jazz. But my understanding was that it was really aimed at regular folks, for lack of a better word. Is that accurate? You know, when I originally opened it, um, I had tended bar around the, the Lower East Side and some of the Upper West Side. and um, I knew many of the bartenders, and I hired people who had followings, and I had a following. And I knew that people in the art scene would begin to come to this bar. And at the start, it was pretty much a painter's bar because there were so many painters in the lofts around the Lower East Side in those days. There were cheap lofts. Robert Indiana would come and uh, Mike Goldberg would come. And, uh, we then started to uh, create a jazz scene. And it was my sense that we couldn't draw people if we had large overheads and large... So we, <clears throat> we had a small door charge. And, but it wasn't very much. And actually, we had so many regulars, we let people pass, and so the door charge was virtually non-existent. And what this place became was a rather extended family um, of musicians and people off the street and locals and artists and painters and writers. So for the first few years, it was a local place, really, but with the greatest music you could ever hear. And the reputation of it as a place managed and run by a poet, myself, who hired painters and poets and musicians to run it. It was not the adversarial cliché that many jazz clubs are, where the owner is the man and he's trying to rip off or exploit the performers. And this, this was really very much, it was integrated, it was diverse, um, we, it was black, Latino, white, it was... It was the melting pot that really was the Lower East Side of that time before gentrification. Mm. And uh, the feeling of the room was so special it brought out things in the music that um, are hard to duplicate. 
I want to uh, I want to touch on Henry Threadgill because I had a recent conversation with him that bears on our conversation. Okay. But before we do that, um, I had just selected a few uh, of my favorite things that I thought fit with the context of the show from Last Call at the Tim Palace. I wondered if you would you read music theory? Uh, oh, I certainly would. I think I it's on uh, twenty nine. I certainly would. And this is music theory is um, really uh, written in response to somebody reminding me of Bobby Mover. Um, who was a saxophone player I loved. And he played with Chet Baker, and he, uh, of course, he had uh, drug problems at the time, and uh, he then went on to Berkeley and to Boston, and I think he's still playing alive and well. It's called Music Theory. If a musician is any good, he plays himself the way it passes through him. Jimmy Lovelace, like a ghost, all eyes and always there, picks up his sticks, and makes time true. Bobby Mover, short, fat, off-dope, and clearly penitent for being an embarrassment to himself, takes out his sax and plays the frog who says, I will be a prince for you. Thank you very much. Um, I spoke with Henry Threadgill a couple weeks ago, and... uh, you booked people like Henry at oh, yes. a time when no one else really was booking that kind of right. music. Well, the thing he said that really struck me and, and made me look forward even more to this conversation was that he said, you know, the young guys who were in my band, all they think about is the fact that there's A, no place to play, and B, they've been kind of priced out of what used to be the the dues paying period because they can't afford to live in New York anymore. Right. So I wanted to ask you about right. that. How you saw your your role and the role right. of the Tin Palace in that context in the seventies? Well, you know, it's interesting because Henry's such a special guy, and really, when Henry first came in with the trio air, um, which was himself, Fred Hopkins on bass, and uh, Steve McCall on drums. Um, and you know, this was a learning curve for me also. Uh, all, a lot of this music was new to me, and I had, as I, as I went along to develop ears for it, and people like Henry helped me develop ears for it. Mm. Now, I was very much um, aided in this by Stanley Crouch. Stanley, a controversial guy, um, but with whom I always had a, a decent relationship. I, you know, felt very respectful of Stanley for who Stanley is. Stanley is Stanley. And if you like him, you like him. If you don't, you don't. But he is who he is. When Stanley first came to New York with David, he and David Murray lived in the loft above the Tin Palace. And I got to know them as they were getting to know New York City. And Stanley was also being the kind of savant he is, um, was beginning to champion this new music, this avant-garde music. And uh, the first time I heard it, I went up to his loft and listened to Stanley play drums uh, as Stanley plays drums, and David play as, as David plays. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. And then Stanley made some suggestions. And after a while, I said to Stanley, look, I'm booking the evenings, but you do a Sunday avant-garde series. Would you like to do that? He said, yeah, and he ran with it. And he brought in magnificent musicians I would not have on my own have brought in. But I learned, 
and I grew as a result of that. And uh, it was clear to me, look, all through this, there's, there's some moments in life, if you're fortunate, where you become part of something which is larger than yourself. Mm. And if you recognize it as it's happening, then you can enjoy it as it's happening. There were two issues for me. One was not to get swept away by it and not to let the environment get out of control. So there's a balance between allowing openness and creativity but maintaining structure. And so that's what we did. And in a sense, it's like the improvisational music of the avant-garde. The spirit of that was all around. And the musicians who came there to play were growing in their own idiom and their own understanding of what they were doing. Mm. And so there was a real reciprocal sense of mutual growth, the audience growing with the musicians. Now, these are moments. These are spots of time. Uh, Ezra Pound called these vectors. And when Pound talked about the Paris of the 20s or the London of the, you know, he said these are vectors of energy where certain things come together. Nobody orchestrates these. They are concatenations that happen for a physics that defies anybody's control. But there they are, and when you're in it, you know it. And that was what was so marvelous about this for me. Henry, Oliver Lake, um, you know, David Murray, I mean, all of these guys knew it. They had the sense of something special happening. So by the time the World Saxophone Quartet walked into Carnegie Hall in tuxedos, they knew who they were. Mm. And part of it was through the stage at this place on Bowery and Second Street. I want to, uh, I want to ask you in a minute to... Um to kind of paint a word picture of what we would have seen if we'd walked into the, the Tin Palace. But before I do that, um, this is a poem that isn't necessarily particularly jazz-related, but that really struck me in the book. It's called Rats. I'm wondering if you would uh, uh-huh. if you'd read that for us. Sure, because Rats comes out of my experience with the Board of Health. Uh, my Rats and Roach poem are um, the poems I wrote. 47 while while um, getting licensed as a food handler uh, so that uh, I could serve uh, food without getting busted. And uh, I sat there listening to the lectures, and I wrote several poems, and this is one of them. Rats. Rats are like the rest of us. They need food, shelter, water. The Norway rat weighs about a pound, the common roof rat about three-quarters. Rats tailor their population to fit the supply of available food and overrun places like Bilanair, Rajasthan, and Calcutta's Rat Park, where they are considered holy incarnations of some cosmic hunger. Rats, unlike Hindus, are merciless about birth control and have been known to practice euthanasia by killing off the old and infirm. Rats are noisy lovers, At night, you can hear them in attics, on roofs, between hollow walls, under street vents. They are devouring in everything they do. That is their law. A rat's teeth are perpetually growing, and if left unused, will curl back to penetrate its brain. Moderation for a rat is a form of suicide. Rats use our sewers for harbors and make highways of our pipelines. Rats are blind but prowl after dark to avoid predators, the greatest of which is man, 
who kills the rat with substances that cause heart attack and softening of the arteries, or a trap that breaks its back in a mechanical rage. And if you, uh, if you look in the show notes for the Jazz Session online at thejazzsession.com, you'll find links uh, to purchase Paul's books. Uh, and everything he's reading on the show today comes from Last Call at the Tin Palace, uh, but I highly recommend all of his work. Um, would you start us on the sidewalk with the particular uh, uh, architectural solution you devised that uh, led to the name of the club, and then walk us inside and tell us what we would have seen? Well, the, the club had a couple of different stages. In building the club, uh, it was clear we had to we leased the whole building. We got a good long lease on the building and a good rental on it. And we excavated the basement. Um, we literally dug it all out. We resupported the building with steel. And in our excavations in one of the coal cellars in which we built our cooler, our walk-in, we came up with an old newspaper which had as its headline, Bars for New York, Mulrooney Says. And we realized this was the end of Prohibition. This was the headline in the Daily News announcing the end of Prohibition. And it was down there. And it kind of confirmed the legend that I had heard that this place had once been a speakeasy run by uh, Meyer Lansky. Um, and the uh, legend goes that it was busted at one point because they confused the um, runoff with the bathtub gin with the sewer lines and had overflow into the streets. So the building itself was doing what old buildings do, unless they're supported well, is they, they twist down. Buildings don't fall straight down. They fall like corkscrews. So there was a little twist in the exterior of this building, which left a fissure in the brick wall outside. And we knew that when final inspection came from the building department, if they saw that fissure, we would never pass. So I came up with a solution. And the solution turned out to be getting ceiling tin that was the same ceiling tin as the ceiling that we kept, this lovely pressed tin with a beautiful design. We framed it off and we covered the fissure in the whole wall outside with this very shiny polyurethane ceiling tin and called it the Tin Palace so it looked like a decorative element. What it was really doing was masking the fact that the building might at any moment corkscrew down to the ground. <laughs> Um, which, thank God, it never did. So, so if you approached the Tin Palace in its opening phase, you approached a, uh, a wall of very shiny tin. It, was, it reminded me of, of kind of a, uh, a monumental uh, um, ancient production where you see the sun shining off to, sh to, to signal ships in the harbor. Uh, but it was simply a, a subterfuge. Um, it turned out to be decoratively very nice. And uh, as time went on, we put cafes on the outside of this strip. But at first, in order to build the bar, we had to deal with the Sunday Wine and Crabs concession, which was this tradition on the Bowery, while the place was unoccupied, of all kinds of people who were street folks meeting and shooting craps and, and selling wine on Sundays. And some of them were really tough. There was one guy named Heavy who ran it. And Heavy, Heavy could have uh, been a linebacker uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was, just, he was this big guy. We ended up hiring Heavy and the wine and craps concession to help us put the steel in. 
they got a big kick and we paid them. They put the steel in and so we solved the problem of the wine and crabs concession. Um, a sculptor named Bobby Bowles, who was a good friend of Paul Blackburn's, riveted his sculpture called the Third Avenue L in front of the bar. And it was a um, carved steel girder that was supposed to represent the old Third Avenue L that ran past it and had been torn down. Uh, and this uh, stayed in front of the bar, too, in the early phases, till one day it was missing. And we wondered how it was missing because it had been bolted in. And we later found out Bobby himself had stolen it <laughs> and brought it downtown to another bar. Um, and Bobby had a whole bunch of – he would make his living. It was a great sculptor. But he would make his living by um, plumbing and electrifying bars and getting tabs – Money seldom passed hands with Bobby. Um, and while he was working on the Spring Street bar, all the way down, no, it was Broom Street, down in Broom Street in Soho, there was this island in the middle of the uh, confluence of streets. It was a small island. He put the Third Avenue L in the middle of this island, bolted it down with about 20 other steel Bobby Ball sculptures. And eventually I saw in the headlines a article that said, Art or trash? And there was a picture of all Bobby's sculptures. And eventually, the city of New York took them all away. But anyway, this I've, I've diverged. So this was the entrance to the Tin Palace. We then put on cafes. Um, we expanded. And the evolution of the place was rather stunning because after our second or third year, limousines began to pull up in front of it. Um, Japanese tourists began to flood in there. But among our regulars, you know, we had, this was a, interest. We had Charlie Watts, Stone's drummer, he used to come in regularly. He was one of our regulars, and he'd come in, very quiet guy, jazz lover. If Charlie could have played anything he wanted to play, that's what he would have played, and uh, he became a regular. Vonnegut, uh, uh, Scorsese, they came in, but one of our most mysterious and wonderful regulars was a guy named Doc Pomus, mm. and. I don't know how many people know Doc Pomus, but he was the Doc Pomus song book is all the old great, um, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to, rock tunes. And Doc Pomus was a cripple. And he came in on a big van and he was a regular and he, they would lower Doc on in his wheelchair and we would have to have to open both doors. And it was really ceremonious. We opened both doors to the, to, to the, to the place and he would wheel Doc in and Doc had his own table. It was the Doc Palmer's table. Um, so the stories are, I could keep telling them and I won't because our time is limited, but the place had this aura. Um, some, of the, some of the fixtures inside, one of the fixtures was a rail between the bar and the tables that we took out of the old fallen Broadway Central Hotel, which mm. had been an art bar, and a... Manischewitz family had built it at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. It was a, 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 a luxury hotel. By the time the century ended, 20th century ended, it was an SRO only, and it was a, a welfare hotel, and uh, which uh, St. Adrian's, which was a great painter's bar, was next to where I tended bar. And when the hotel collapsed, myself and three or four other of the people involved in the building of it went through at night, and we looked for what we could save because not to vandalize it, we wanted to save these fixtures. And we came up with this beautiful wooden railing. And we took it from the uh, 
Broadway, fall and Broadway Central, and it became one of our fixtures. The other thing we discovered is when we took down the bar that existed in there, under layers of paint and grime, out came this beautiful mahogany and rosewood Art Deco bar, which was a piece of a piece of art. It was a piece of great art. So, taking this place out of the ashes, what came together serendipitously, all of these elements, gave it a character that it would never have had if we'd sat down with a blueprint and designed it all from the beginning. Mm. First of all, let me tell you that if you consent, you're going to be on again because uh, I mean, we haven't talked about any Jefferson. We haven't talked about anything, right? So there's a ton of stuff we need to talk about. That's However, uh, the, the show has a somewhat defined time limit that okay. you know. So, um, uh, so with all that said, I there are two more things I want to ask you to read, and in between, I want you to tell folks about the late George Jazz Weekend, okay. uh, and then we're gonna we'll do this again and we'll Good. dig it. There's, uh, I think we've gotten to my first note. <laughs> of the notes that I have on my piece of paper. Um, I was hoping that you would read, I know you read it earlier tonight, but it's just such a, a perfect encapsulation of a of a lifetime in this music, uh, the, the poem Bass Players. For oh, us. okay, yes. It's on 64. Yes, and, and, and again, this this is um, uh, begins at um, the Lake George Jazz Weekend, which I've been doing for the last 26 years, and occasionally um, I run into people that I haven't seen for 20 or 30 years, and uh, on this occasion, uh, I ran into Calvin Hill, and he was coming around the stage, and I was coming around the other way, and we stopped and we stared at each other, and Calvin looked at me intensely and gave me the first line of this poem, Bass Players. So, you've survived too, says Calvin Hill after his set at Lake George with David Fathead Newman. Still natty in tweeds, he stares into my eyes and sighs, all those others gone. I nod when he mentions Fred Hopkins, whose fingers moved as if the notes were inherent in their tips, Major Holly, whose voice echoed through the wood as if caged so deeply in its ribs the instrument hummed back to him. I think about them again in New York City when I run across Mike Fleming at the Algonquin backing Andy Bay to celebrate a new book on Chet Baker at which Mike tells us what it was like to tour with the angel of death hunched over the wheel, leaving Denver at night to drive high down mountain roads and around blind curves. Where have you been all these years? Mike calls from the stage, grabs my hand as though he's grown impatient, waiting for me to marry, raise a child, then meet him like this. At Birdland, Dennis Irwin tells me he has quit going on the road but not that he's terminally ill. Says that Henry Grimes, who most thought dead, has a new axe and is back after 30 years writing poems alone in an L.A.S.R.O. Later that week, waiting for Sunny Fortune to hit at sweet rhythm, I am surprised when a trim man with gray hair and a face chiseled from Lebanon cedar appears at my table, raises his glass with such elegance, I clink it before I recognize Cecil McBee, who bows, then rejoins a blonde beauty in a booth until he mounts the stage to draw so much music from his contrabass that I want to call out, it's through you I learned to hear wisdom and grief, 
to listen for notes behind the notes, identify what allows us to reach through the melody to touch the pulse of time. So, as I mentioned, we haven't not only have we not talked about the 26 years of the late George Jazz Weekend, uh, we there's so many things from the Tim Palace era that I want to talk to you about. So, uh, again, like I said, if I can if I can wring more time out of you, we will uh, we'll do this again. Um, but I do want you to tell folks uh, this will air before the late George Jazz Weekend, and I want you to tell folks uh, who's going to be here this year because it sounds like a really special event. Uh, it, it's 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 a great event this year, and. Uh, um, and I'm sorry. Tell folks when it is. Yeah, it, 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 the Lake George Jazz Weekend takes place the third weekend in September of every year, and it's a it's a wonderful time of year to do it because the tourists are gone, the lake is quieter, um, fall is in the air, but it has not turned cold. Leaves are beginning to change, and it's an outdoor festival in an amphitheater on the shores of the lake. So the setting is like an alpine Swiss setting almost. It's one of the most beautiful venues. Uh, maybe three to 5,000 people pass through over the weekend, but the atmosphere is intimate. The musicians are approachable, and you can get close and far. It's a free festival. It's, uh, it's, it's funded by a, uh, uh, a number of grants, and this year a wonderful donor, Ken Gruskin and his wife, so that, um, you know, my task every year for the last 26 years has been to fill um, three slots on Saturday and three slots on Sunday and sometimes an evening show with um, the best energy that I can muster for each occasion. And I go about doing this in the same way I used to book the Tin Palace. And it takes me a while to book each year because... What emerges from my own chaos are new patterns, and there's usually something that links for me the uh, players, so that each festival has a has a certain. While the music is diverse, it has a certain unifying theme. Uh, this year, uh, I'm opening with the uh, trio, um, led by Daniel Kelly, who's a wonderful young improvisational pianist. Is 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 um, Trio album CD Emerge uh, just knocked me out, and uh, his solo uh, improvisational uh, CD Portal I think is uh, among the best uh, of the improvisational playing I've heard, including Keith Jarrett. So he's going to lead off with his trio. David Amram is going to follow, and David is a national treasure. David started with Leonard Bernstein, went on to uh, uh, orchestrate the, the movie uh, Pull My Daisy of the Beats, hung out with Kerouac and Corso, played jazz with Dizzy Gillespie, uh, started on French horn, everything from French horn to piccolo to penny whistle. He's 80 years old, and there's a, um, uh, a documentary filmmaker following him around, documenting the 80 uh, years of his life, 80th year of his life. It's going to have a big celebration in Symphony Space in New York in November, but the first celebration is going to be up with us in Lake George in September, and we're very much looking forward to having David and his quartet up there. The um, vocalist who's going to end the Saturday day show is Rosanna, Rosanna Vitro, and she's coming up with something called the Randy Newman Project, which when I heard it, it seemed to me so original and the arrangements for this group, which include violin as well as cello, the arrangements are so original. And what she does with Randy Newman's music, it, it, it's, it's, it's magical. And so that's our Saturday format. And uh, 
On Sunday, we're having Cheryl Cassidy, who's a brilliant young saxophone player, and uh, uh, she's going to uh, be there with her quartet. Uh, actually, probably a quintet. Um, she'll be followed by Buster Williams with his quartet, and it's an incredible quartet. It has Stefan Harris on vibes, and Cindy Blackman, who was here before on drums. If, if, anybody who wants to watch a magnificent uh, dance on the drums has to watch Cindy Blackman. She's a spectacle. The music is going to be a spectacle for the ears and the eyes. Um, and it's going to be followed by um, Samuel Torres, who's one of the great congueros from Colombia, with his uh, uh, group. So it's it's rhythmic, it's pulsing, it's vital. There's a lot of originality and youth in this year with the anchor of David's 80 years on the planet. We're going to have a Saturday night performance, and uh, I'm not sure yet who's going to be doing it. We're still negotiating, so I'm not going to name, but it's going to be a, a very special player. And if you check the show notes at the jazzsession.com, the name of my show, which I apparently can't say, uh, you'll find the links to the Lake George Jazz Weekend. Well, I was hoping you would uh, take us out with no complaints. I sure uh, will. Would, which is on uh, 58, I think. I sure will. And at the moment, that's just the way I'm feeling. No complaints. Poetry is all I've ever really had. When a poem works, it means the world to me, the world made vivid and young. Once I thought poetry would deliver power, wealth, and endless adoration. Instead, I got more poems every year, and the world getting brighter, younger. That's Paul Pines. There are links uh, to find his new book, Last Call at the Tin Palace, online at thejazzsession.com. My name is Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by All About Jazz, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet for recording the theme music for this program. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel for designing the show's logo. My new book of poems, Unexpected Sunlight, is now available. You can find it at jasoncrane.org store. That's jasoncrane.org store. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.